Greetings and welcome to Witnesses of the King. Witnesses of the King, we're continuing our study in the book of Acts, and we're going to begin today. In Acts chapter 8, we're going to start at verse 26, and we're going to go to the end of the chapter. And here we find that we're transitioning in this gospel account, in the account of the spreading of the gospel, the spreading of the early church, from a time when it was focused on Jerusalem, chapters 1 through 7, where it's really focused in on what the promise of God was, was to bring the gospel to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. So it's going to the Jews first all the way through chapter 7. But then some persecution arises in Jerusalem and some of the uh, faithful are scattered around and they take the gospel out of town with them. And we see uh, they take it to Samaria and we focus in on a, a particular disciple who is first mentioned in Acts chapter 6. His name is Philip. And we see that he is now taking this to Samaria, and we're going to see it is spreading to proselytes, that is, people that had converted to Ju Judaism prior, to what's called God-fearers, people who have heard of it, who believed in the God of the Jews and, and worshipped in their own way. And then we're going to see it's going to go wholesale to Gentiles who've never heard the good news, never heard about this God of the Bible. And so we're going to, uh, following that trend, and the lesson in it is this, and simply this, and one thing that Luke emphasizes both in his gospel and in the account of, of Acts, is that the gospel is indeed for everyone. It's not exclusively for the East. It's not exclusively for the Western mindset. It's not for the white or the black or the in-between. It is not for the rich or the, full, or for the poor. It is for everyone. And last time we saw that it had gone to the Samaritans, people that were despised by Jews. They were very close in their religion. They had the same common heritage and they were close in their proximity and yet they were very far socially. And we see that last time in the beginning of chapter 8, the gospel was going to them and many were responding. And what we're going to see here at the uh, end of chapter 8 is that Philip now goes from preaching to crowds to preaching to an individual. It's a divine appointment made by God. He's sent there by an angel and the Holy Spirit of God. And we find very important lessons here as this gospel comes to this man of Ethiopia. I'm going to alliterate our outline uh, with four words. That is way, word, water, and worship. And what we're going to find in here is we're going to find much information about how God brings the gospel to people and saves them. So let's first go to the scriptures. Here we're going to go to Acts chapter 8. We're going to start at verse 26. And here's what it says. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship, and was returning, seated in his chariot, and who was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. 
Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation, for his life is taken away from the earth? And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way, rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Well, let's begin now with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you so much for this account of how our brother Philip took the gospel to now our new brother from Ethiopia. And Lord, I pray that you will encourage us and you will teach us by this and that you will show your goodness and that you have proclaimed life. You have brought light into the world. And Lord, as it spreads and as people believe, we rejoice and we praise you for your goodness, your grace and your mercy that has brought salvation in Jesus Christ. Give us understanding this day of these things that we may indeed apply them to ourselves and partake of the joy that we saw in our brother as he went on his way. Lord, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first thing I want to get to by way of an outline here is I want to talk about this way. And with the way, I want to first of all point this out. God brings opportunities to the faithful. God brings opportunities to the faithful. The angels, he is sent by an angel. The angels are ministering spirits uh, made to serve believers. Hebrews 1.14 describes that to us. Aren't they ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? And if we review what we've learned in the Bible about angels, and we go back through the pages and we see when angels show up, they come to believers with messages or assignments from God. And the believers respond to the angel and then go on and, and do what it is that God has asked them to do. Now, it's not always without objection, but indeed, they ultimately end up doing it. But angels also occasionally visit unbelievers in judgment. In Genesis chapter 18, we see this with Sodom and Gomorrah, where the angels go there to, uh, to bring judgment, to, to discuss, to look at these cities and, and relate to God what's going on there, but also to rescue Lot and his family out of there. In Exodus 12, we see the angel of the Lord coming and bringing judgment on Egypt's firstborn. In Judges chapter 2, uh, it, the angel comes to the people of God that were being unfaithful, and it brings a message of judgment. In Second Samuel, we see an angel struck down 70,000 in Israel because of David's census and some unfaithfulness of his. In Second uh, Kings chapter 19, an angel of the Lord struck down 185,000 of the army of Assyria because they came up against Jerusalem and Hezekiah and Isaiah prayed, and the Lord answered their prayer with this great victory. 
So they generally come with judgment to non-believers, but with great messages and, and, and messages of hope or assignments to believers. We think of Daniel and we think of Joshua and then we get to the New Testament and we see Zechariah and Mary and Joseph all have encounters with angels. They generally show up to the believers and they say, look, first of all, don't be afraid. And then I bring you news or I bring you an assignment. In this case, Philip gets an assignment and his assignment is to go meet someone on the way down to Gaza from Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem being uh, in an elevated place near the Dead Sea and Gaza being along the coast of the Mediterranean, this man was returning home after a visit to Jerusalem. Now, why do I bring up all this about angels? I, I want to say that God knows his own. The angel came to Philip because God knew Philip would do the job. If an angel shows up with a job to do, it is showing up generally to one who will do it. Now, a little bit of Philip's background is simple. We meet him, uh, actually we meet him in Acts chapter 6, but in Acts chapter 2 we give a summary of what the early church was doing. These were people that were continually dedicated to the apostles' teaching and to the uh, breaking of bread and the prayers and sharing everything that they had. In Acts chapter 6, he was one among seven in which was who was chosen to do a special distribution uh, for the widows among them. And we find out uh, in Acts chapter 21, he is called, and we'll see why in a moment, an evangelist. He was considered by his peers, according to the, the purposes set forth in Acts chapter 6, that he was of good repute, that he was full of the Spirit and of the wisdom of God. He showed himself to be faithful to proclaim the gospel earlier in chapter 8 by taking it to the Samaritans. So the very clear point of his background is this. He was faithful. He was a man of prayer. He was a man of the word. He was a man of witness, full of the Spirit. And so this is powerfully important when we see the point here. We think of the words of Jesus who said this. He said, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. One who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. Philip was one that was found to be faithful. And he says in Matthew chapter 5 that he's going to say to some of his servants, well done, because you've been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So back in chapter 6, when he was first uh, assigned or elected by his peers to serve as one of these what we now call deacons, to serve the church by making sure that the distribution to the widows is done properly and is done, period. When he is chosen to do that, he had a bit of a decision to make. He could have had the attitude, oh man, now I'm going to wait tables. I'm apostle material. Maybe his wife encouraged him along these lines to say, you know what, you need to stand up for yourself, Philip. You're above this waiting of tables. You're apostle material. What you need to do is you need to assert yourself. You need to show them what you're capable of. How many families are here in this church now because of you? And how much have you already done for them? And look how faithful you've been. You're capable of bigger things. But that's not how it works in the kingdom of God. He was faithful in what he was given, and therefore he's given more to do. 
So are you frustrated in your life? Do you feel like your Christian life is not bearing the fruit that it should? Well, let me give you an encouragement. And the encouragement is this, that God brings opportunities to the faithful. Therefore, we should be in a position to expect opportunities from God. And we can put ourselves in that position to expect opportunities from God. And when it comes to witnessing, as he was doing here, and as he did earlier in chapter 8, Philip was, it says this, Peter says this as a formula for being prepared. Let me go ahead and put it up here for you. Uh, He says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for reason it is for the hope that is in you. Notice that the condition that makes one, according to what Peter says here in this verse, the condition that makes one prepared to make a defense is honoring Christ the Lord as holy in our hearts. And so this is powerfully important that the preparation for the work of God is fellowship with God, is spending time in Him, is, is, is being faithful in the basics of the Christian life, in prayer and in the ministry of the Word and worshiping with His people. Honor Christ as holy. That means obeying His commands and being faithful to what He has asked you to do. And my question for you then is this, are you ready should an angel show up today? If an angel shows up today and has a divine appointment for you and says, go to such and such a place and you're going to see a a person doing this and you're going to approach them and tell them the gospel truth, are you ready for that? And if not, why not? We should work at our Christian life expectantly. Now, we shouldn't necessarily expect an angel to come to us. That's exceedingly rare. And I'm not sure that maybe that was limited to the apostolic era. But we should expect opportunities, nonetheless, to share the gospel, for God to connect us with someone, because there are no accidents in a world ruled by a good and sovereign Lord. So we should be ready. We should be devoted. The first and supreme privilege of salvation is relationship with Christ. As a matter of fact, that's how Jesus Christ defines relationship. In John chapter 17, he said, and he said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So in other words, Jesus defined eternal life as relationship with him and the Father. So we begin first by exercising that privilege, that privilege to know the Lord Jesus Christ, to know the Father and be in fellowship with them. And we do that by joining him in prayer and meeting him in the word of God regularly, studying the word in obeying his commands to love one another, to do the works that that move the church along and expand the kingdom and to worship with him regularly in unity together. God brings opportunities to the faithful to bring himself glory and to bring his faithful great joy. So if knowing Christ is the supreme privilege of the Christian life, then I believe that the supreme joy of the Christian life is in sharing that privilege with others, spreading the gospel. That is the supreme joy. There is no more joyous occasion in the Christian life than to see a person moved from death to life, to see them repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ. Then we get to see Jesus Christ working redemption 
in them. The Lord brings opportunities to the faithful and he seals the deal with his word. That's our second W is word. And the word of God, we will see, is the primary raw material of evangelism. This is a major theme in the book of Acts, that when the gospel goes to somebody, it is the word of God that is shared and preached. And we saw Peter's examples in the early chapters. We saw Stephen's example in chapter 7. And this is what we'll see throughout the rest of this book. The word of God is the primary raw material of evangelism. In uh, chapter 8, verse 30 here, I want you to notice the Spirit encourages Philip to join the chariot. And he hears from the chariot this man reading from Isaiah chapter 53. Philip recognized the material. It was common in that day to read aloud. And I encourage you to read aloud because it involves more of the senses. You'll find you retain what you've read much better. So reading aloud, there's the Ethiopian and, and he's got the scroll of Isaiah and he opens it up and he goes, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. No, no, no. There were, there were no chapter and verse divisions in those days. He's simply reading the words. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. And so he's reading these words from the scroll and it's recognized by Philip. He knows where he's at. See, in those days, you had to be a little sharper about the Word of God because you didn't have the help of those chapter and verse divisions. They're not inspired, but they're very, very helpful. So his words are familiar to Philip. He had obviously been there before. He'd obviously studied that scroll before. So he was prepared then to share the gospel. And if you're familiar with Isaiah 53, you understand that to someone who wants to share the gospel, Isaiah 53 it's like a low fastball over the middle of the plate. In other words, it is a home run pitch for those who want to hit the gospel out of the park. The angel and the Holy Spirit, it's as if they said to Philip, Philip, I got a freebie for you. We're going to tell you where to find the guy, and he's already going to be reading Isaiah 53, and you go share the gospel with him. Well, any person of God familiar with Isaiah 53 should say, oh yeah, that should be simple. That's the best chapter in all of the Old Testament from which to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I indeed, I believe it is. Now there's virtually any passage you could, but that one so lays it out. His substitutionary atonement that he did for us, the fact that he died, the fact that he's raised again, it's all there in Isaiah chapter 53. It's the word of God that the Holy Spirit uses to save someone. In Romans chapter 10, Paul's saying, how can anyone believe if no one goes there to share the gospel? He says, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Now, a ch couple chapters later in Isaiah, listen to what the Lord says there. He says, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Jesus' various commissions that he gives to the disciples is to make disciples. How? By baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. That is a work of the word of God. 
He tells them to go and preach the gospel, that is to share the word of God. He tells them, you will be my witnesses. Witnesses to what? Witnesses to the word himself, Jesus Christ. Witnesses who bring the word of God, who tell the story of the gospel. The word of God is essential, but it's never alone in its work. And here's the interesting thing. Sharing the gospel is a Trinitarian endeavor. A Trinitarian endeavor because it requires the Word. And we know that Jesus is called the Word. So there's the Son. But it also requires the Holy Spirit. Listen to how Jesus says this in John chapter 6. He says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Earlier in John chapter 3, he told Nicodemus, you must be born again and explain to him this is a work of the Spirit. It's not necessarily something you'll see. He's obviously not being literal. He's saying that salvation, that regeneration to be born again is a work of the Spirit of God. But it uses the Word of God, which is Christ, and it's brought by the children of God representing the Father. And so it's a Trinitarian work that's done in the gospel, in the sharing of the gospel. And so that third essential element is God's people. Look what happens in verse 30 of Acts chapter 8. Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And, and he says something really profound here. How can I understand unless someone guides me. And so this is powerfully important. How can I unless someone guides me, he says. Th this is the implication here, that, that the Word of God and the Spirit of God necessitate a third element. That third element is you and me. That is us, to give understanding of these things. You know, remember that that Jesus told the disciples as Peter made his great confession, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And Jesus says, on this rock I'll build my church, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But he says something very interesting. He says, to you has been given the keys of the kingdom. Whatsoever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatsoever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. In other words, all spiritual transactions are taking place through the church of Jesus Christ. There's no other way this is happening. Now, I know occasionally what happens is somebody places a Bible somewhere, someone hands somebody a tract, and somebody reads that and gets convicted and gets born again, but they're immediately driven to a church to get more understanding of what they understand. That's what the Holy Spirit will do. Is the Holy Spirit will drive them to understand and connect them with other believers to help them. And who was it that placed the Bible? And who was it that shared the tract? But a believer in Jesus Christ. They are a necessary link in the chain. God saves by the power of his Holy Spirit, the truth of his word, and the witness of his faithful children. These three things and nothing less. So starting there in Isaiah chapter 53, those are verses 7 and 8 he's talking about there. Philip then shared the gospel and the basic elements of the gospel, as you should know them as a believer in Jesus Christ, is simply this, that Jesus Christ was born, he lived, he ministered, he proved his identity, and he suffered and died on the cross for our sins. In other words, for those who would 
trust in him for their salvation, he paid the price on the cross. He took the wrath of God that was due to those sinners on the cross. But because death couldn't contain him, death couldn't hold him, because he was the Son of God, because he, he himself was sinless, he rose again, thus showing and proving the words that he said, that in him is life. And those who believe will be saved. After rising, he appeared to the disciples. He taught them many more things, and he ascended to be at the right hand of the Father. The gospel is fairly simple. He died for our sins. He rose again, and he offers this free gift of eternal life by faith in him. All who repent and trust in Jesus Christ will be saved. So encouragement number two is this, to follow the example of Philip, who was ready to give an answer, who was ready to share the gospel from Isaiah 53. Learn to rightly handle the word of truth. Learn to rightly handle the word of truth. Learn to share the gospel. And I've given in your notes some cross-references you may find helpful. A summary of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15. Some encouragement that I already shared from Romans and John. These things will be helpful in sharing the gospel. We should be able to go somewhere in the scriptures to tell someone how to be saved in Jesus Christ. John 3 is a wonderful place to go. Isaiah 53 is a good place to go. And so this encouragement, of course, is related to the first, to be in a position to expect something, then be prepared with the Word of God to do it. Now my question for you is this, how much training and effort have you put forth for your vocation, for your job, that, that which you do to earn money to make a living, or that what you do around the household. How often have you studied to learn how to do particular things, how to cook certain things, how to clean certain ways, how to manage a household? Have you studied for those things? Have you worked for those things? Have you practiced those things? How many statistics do you know about your favorite sports teams? And how much trivia do you know about your favorite hobby? And the question I have for you is, will any of those things save anyone? Now, many of those things are necessary, and certainly all of those things are lawful to do. There's nothing wrong with those pursuits. But couldn't we carve out some of our time doing those other things to increase our intake and understanding of God's Word so that we could be ready to do so? Learn to rightly handle the word of truth. This is for all of us, every believer in Jesus Christ. Jesus' model for the church is disciples making disciples. Not just leaders making disciples, disciples making disciples. Philip obeyed the call. He found this man needed help understanding. He explained the gospel. So was this a fruitful venture? Yes. This bore fruit. This man was saved. How do we know this? Well, look in verse 36 here. This bore fruit. If we look in verse 36, the man simply says this. As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? In other words, this man recognized that the next necessary step was to obey Jesus' first command after coming to salvation, after knowing him, be baptized. 
And in the Great Commission, Jesus says, go and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. That baptism is like that first thing that comes after becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. He commanded many things, but baptism was clearly the first and most basic response. We see it in Acts chapter 2, the first sermon of the early church. Peter says to the people, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Their baptism is right up top with repentance, which is the very first thing, repentance, uh, very first response to faith. And Jesus included repentance in his first formula that he's recorded as uh, saying in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is here, it's at hand, repent and believe in the the gospel. And if we believe, then we will obey in baptism. Now in Romans chapter 6, we find that baptism is a symbol of dying, being buried with Christ, being resurrected to walk in newness of life, having had our sins washed away. It is a very public statement. To undergo baptism is to say to everyone watching and indeed to the world, and most importantly to God, I am yours. I am dead with Jesus, buried under the water, and I have risen now, cleansed to walk in a new life. Oh, this is powerful, and this is wonderful that this man saw right away, hey, look, there's water. Let's get baptized. That's how you know that he certainly believed these things. And this is my third encouragement. Take the next step in obedience to Jesus Christ. Whatever that step is for you, if you haven't repented of your sins, now is the time. If you haven't been baptized yet, now is the time. If you've not joined with other believers in a fellowship, with, which often baptism and joining a church go together, then now find one. Contact us if you need help finding a faithful church in your area. But you must be connected with the people of God. That's how this works. Have you been moved by the gospel to obey the Lord Jesus Christ? So stop the chariot. You need to be baptized. Or you need to take whatever that next step is in your faith. Maybe you need to serve in your local church. Volunteer for a position there. Do something. Clean floors. Uh, be an evangelist. Street preach. Do something. But there are many opportunities, many things you can do. Philip was found faithful to serve tables. He is now faithful to be taken by God to spread the gospel anywhere and everywhere to anyone. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Well, finally, our last step here is to worship. And this is a, a great point to pick out of the text here. I want you to see this because here in the text, uh, we, what we want to do is recognize God's goodness in this process. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. Isn't that interesting? And the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. He went on his way rejoicing. And, and if you've read chapter 8 before, hopefully by the time you get to verse uh, 39 here, you're rejoicing too. You're rejoicing too because this is the account of God saving people, moving from death to life. And we rejoice with him, for we shall see this brother one day. We share in his joy now, and we shall share in it eternally. This man's greatest problem of life had 
had been solved. Life itself came to him that day. When we see him, he'll probably tell us of the burden of sin and guilt that he had prior to that day with Philip and how the gospel removed that burden and put it on the cross. How as he came up out of the water clean, so too his spirit was renewed in him. He walked now in a new life. The cares of this world now minor compared to the riches of Christ. He went on his way rejoicing. Now what I want to do in order to drive this home and, and explain this to you is I want to talk a little bit about this man, who he was, and how important this is. If we go back earlier in the chapter when this man is introduced, he's an Ethiopian, a eunuch. Uh, he was an influential man, a treasurer of the queen. He was a member of the court. In other words, he could come and go from the court to the queen. This, this was somebody powerfully important that would be acquainted with the queen herself in his land. This was a dignitary. He's riding in a chariot. This is not some random pilgrim that comes and goes from Jerusalem occasionally. This is a man of importance. But he's also a eunuch. He's been deprived of that opportunity for offspring, which was very common for treasurers and people in important positions like that because uh, making a man into a eunuch, that is taking away his basic uh, manly impulses, had the effect of making someone a little more gentle and a little more honest, less prone to greed. Well, he had been in Jerusalem, and this is an important point. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. Now, if a man like this comes, came to Jerusalem in those days, he is not going to stay in some random person's house. He is not going to stay in a manger because there's no room for him at an inn. No, he, he is going to be staying with the leadership He's going to be a guest of the king because this is a dignitary from a, for, from a foreign country. So he's going to be a guest of the Jewish king or a guest of the Roman governor. Either way, he's going to be ministered to and he's going to be served and he's going to have the finest place to stay and he's going to have great hospitality while he's there. He's going to be surrounded by the religious leaders of the time because he's coming there for that interest. So they're going to be like, oh, you need to meet the chief priest and you need to, to meet these scribes and you need to spend a little time with them. And so here he's gone to Jerusalem to worship. He is in such a position of influence that there's no question that he would have spent time with the religious leaders of the day. And yet here he is riding in a chariot on his way home empty. See, he's reading the scroll of Isaiah. And when you read chapter 53, you should be lifted up to say, this fantastic God, look what he's doing. Look at the servant of God that comes and gives his life for the sins of people he doesn't even know yet. That, that these people would have then the opportunity to live for having their sins taken away. And you should be reading this and enjoying it and understanding it. But he is not. He's gone away empty, but he is hungry and maybe all the more hungry, having been there to worship, having seen and heard about the history of Israel. And now he's probably even hungrier. So God, knowing this and seeing this, takes one of his own, Philip. He interrupts his life he sends him tremendously out of his way on this road down through Gaza. And he brings him the word of God.
So the Word of God, the Spirit of God, the Church now of God are brought together to bring that man life. And what does he do? He goes on his way rejoicing. This man is now enrolled in heaven. He's been given the ability himself to now yield spiritual offspring in the kingdom of God. See, what the world could not bring him through privilege, through position, God brought him through his humble servant, Philip. This is how good our God is. He provides what we need. This man needed the gospel. And he was hungry for the gospel, so the Spirit was already working with him because no one seeks God. And so, indeed, the Spirit's working with him. He's got the Word of God right there, and what's God do? God sends a third element to him and brings this man to salvation on this day. God provides what we need. Now, I want you to think back on the encouragements I've given here, and I want you to understand this fourth encouragement. Know that God will give you whatever it is you need to fulfill his will. The other elements I spoke of, it might have sounded like a moralistic preaching or something because I said, be in a position to expect opportunities from God, learn to rightly handle the word of truth, and take the next step in obedience to Jesus Christ. That's kind of a a long to-do list. Three very big to-dos on that list. But understand this, God will provide all those things. Your first step in each one of those things is asking the Lord Jesus Christ to give you what you need to fulfill his ministry because he's the one building his church and he equips for that and he gifts each according to how he has placed them in the body of Christ. Each and every one of us have to bear witness of Jesus Christ so he will equip each and every one of us. It is a process. It takes time. It takes faithfulness and sacrifice, but he will reward it with great joy. You must know that God will provide whatever you need to fulfill his will. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not particularly smart. Now, after maybe having seen a few of my sermons, you realize this is so I'm definitely not outgoing. I'm not the one who would complain in a restaurant if I was brought the wrong food. I would probably just eat what I was given because I don't like that kind of confrontation. I'm not outgoing. I'm not particularly educated. People say, why don't you get an advanced degree? I say, because when I became a believer, I hadn't even read the Bible yet. So I went and got a second bachelor's degree in college. We're all weak in some way. We all fall short. We all lack But that is the point. We seek him for all that we lack and he provides it and he gets the glory for the, those that are saved in Jesus Christ. This man needed the gospel. He needed someone to get him started and God provided it. Whatever you need as a faithful child of God to do God's will, to take the gospel, he will provide. He provided Philip with directions, with the travel necessary afterwards. He just transports him to his next place. He's going to provide for you too. He's going to give you all that you need. Let's pray together. Father God, we worship you this day. We worship you and we rejoice with our brother, this Ethiopian. 
for the salvation that you brought him, the beautiful way in which you did it, the way in which you worked in him to give him this hunger for the word of God and to understand it, the way you provided him with the word. Lord, scrolls of Isaiah were precious in those days and that he had one is profound. And then you sent your servant Philip to fill it in. And you brought these things together and you saved this man. And indeed, Lord, you've done so for many of us uh, spending time together in this sermon today. And indeed, we praise you for it. We ask you, Lord, to make yourself known by filling up in us what's lacking and giving us the motivation by your Spirit to go and be obedient to Christ and make disciples wherever we are, whatever our opportunity, whoever we meet on the road, to come alongside them and explain the Word of God that they may be saved. Lord, I pray that you'll increase our faith to ask you for all these things, to expect you to provide, to praise you when you do. We praise you for this salvation. We praise you for your word. We praise you because you are altogether worthy. Would not a person be saved, but not for your grace and your mercy. We thank you in Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. And I pray this has been an encouragement to you. I hope that you will uh, consider what we have spoken about this day. And you will uh, look us up. If we can help you in some way, our contact information is there. You can find us at whitesrun.org. You can email me at whitesrunbaptist at gmail.com, and I will respond to questions, comments, concerns, objections. If you hate something I said, just write and let me know about it. If you want help finding a church near you, we can also do that. We can help you find a faithful Bible-believing church near you. So please contact us. Reach out. Let us fellowship together.